Let's open up our Bibles together to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our understanding of this blessed epistle that really is a sermon written to a first century church that was largely comprised of Jewish converts. What a privilege it would have been to be raised in the Jewish community being made aware of all of the oracles of God, all of the promises of God, having the sign, the external sign of the Abrahamic covenant, being pointed ever since birth and childhood to the reality of the promises of the one true living God and Creator. But with that blessed, comfortable routine also would have come great hindrances as well. We all know that the old phrase is true, with familiarity grows what? Contentment. With familiarity there uh, can at times grow a coldness. And for whatever reason, these early Jewish converts who had come under the preaching of the gospel, that the Messiah had truly come and the Messiah is here and everything that the patriarchs and all that the prophets pointed to, it's been realized. A.J. read Isaiah 53 in our Old Testament reading this morning. And these Jewish converts from birth would have been hearing that promise of the Messiah. And they've been converted. They've been called. Something has happened in their life. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews has been indicating all along. He sincerely believes that they're the converted brothers and sisters. But something is causing them. Something's tempting them to turn their backs on Christ, His covenant, and His gospel. And to be entertained somehow of going back to the old ways. Going back and, 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 and placing themselves under the bondage, you could say, of the old system that never gave them the full rest that God had always promised and that their prophets pointed to and that the New Testament preachers and the apostles were saying was realized only in Jesus Christ. And by the working operation of the Holy Spirit, they cried yes and amen. They placed faith by God's grace in the Messiah And they've experienced that rest, but something's pressing in on them. Something's begun to crouch in on this newfound faith that they have been enjoying and tempting them to turn back. And so after laboring much in chapters 1 and 2 about the blessed realities of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, His eternal sonship and glory with the Father, the necessity of the Father's divine plan in verse, uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 10, of requiring His eternal Son to take upon Himself the nature of Abraham, verse 16 says, the nature of a man, in order that He can make reconciliation for the sins of man. After laying all of that out, He comes to chapter 3. We noticed last time in this text... And he began to apply the implications of being someone who has tasted the realities of all of these blessings that I've just been laboring to convey to you. And being someone who's tempted to turn back. He began to do what? He began to exhort them. He began to stress and to focus the severity of entertaining the idea of turning your back on such a blessed gospel. He began to do that in verses 1-6 to in the contrast and the comparison with Moses. So it's only natural at this point, coming into verse 7, which we hope to deal with today, to verse 11, that while focusing on a contrast between Jesus being worthy of so much glory than Moses, it's only natural then he begins to compare these first century Jewish converts to their ancient Jewish ancestors who fell into the same ditch that they right now are being tempted to fall into. And so, this pastor, he brings up this glorious illustration of this sad account to help them understand the severity of the situation of even possibly considering turning one's back on Christ and His gospel. Well, why does he do this? I think I've kind of already alluded to it. Uh, but, 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 but what's he hope to gain by drawing this parallel between this first century Jewish Christian church and the ancient Israelites who wandered in the wilderness? 
Well, he does so for the very same reason that the person who was inspired to write the account of the narrative that took place in Psalms 95, verses 7 through 11, of what happened to them, King David, he does so for the very same reason King David did. King David and his generation in Psalms 95, which we have here in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, he repeats, he uses King David's Psalm 95 verbatim, the second half of, and I've given it to you in your sermon notes. King David in his generation, beloved, he wanted to warn his generation that at all cost, absolutely at all costs, they were to not allow themselves to surrender the rest which God had already partially provided them in a materialistic way, in a physical way, in the land of Canaan and under the splendid Davidic reign, right? Under his kingship. But more importantly, he was wanting to warn them, don't surrender the more important spiritual rest that was promised to us in the coming Messiah. This is what David's doing there. He's warning a generation who perhaps could be sleepy, who perhaps growing up amidst and familiar with all these tremendous blessings of God had grown somewhat cold, numb, or deaf to the voice of God and His promised rest. And David wants to warn them at all costs, avoid it. Don't be like our ancestors in ages past. And so, our inspired writer here in Hebrews today, in preaching this sermon, and constructing this argument, wanting to help them to avoid that same mistake at all costs, what's he do? He reaches back in the Chronicles of Scripture He picks up King David's inspired psalm from 95, Psalm 95, and he takes the latter half of it, the warning part, and he uses the scripture in his own message to these first century Jewish converts, and he places it in his sermon for the exact same purposes, to warn these people, don't begin to drift. Remember the admonishment last week, beloved, in verse 6, hold fast. They had the idea and the concept to keep your hand on the ship. Don't let the ship begin to drift away. You see what he's doing? He's doing what King David was doing. Wake up. Stay alert. Keep your hands on the ship. Keep your hand on the helm. Steer it in the right course. Don't allow yourself to drift because look at the ancient example we have of the Israelites in the wilderness who began to drift, who began to drift, and who kept thinking and convincing themselves, oh, we're the people of God. Oh, all we got to do is get back. Oh, there's always going to be time. Oh, we'll find our way back. Oh, he's going to be long suffering. Oh, he's going to be patient. Look at the example of what happened. Look at the example of what happened. With such thinking of drifting and such indifference to drifting, It had such a damaging spiritual effect of what the text today says hardened their heart. It hardened their heart and to the extent that they did not know God's ways. David's warning in Psalm 95, which our inspired preacher today is using in Hebrews 3, what was it doing? It was warning and it was pointing forward the promised rest in the Messiah and His generation. And our inspired writer today in Hebrews, he's pointing this first century church backward to the cross and saying, don't you remember the rest that you've received in Christ? Why in the world would you forsake that? David was warning a sleepy generation then. This inspired writer in Hebrews is warning a sleepy New Testament congregation in his own day. And so the sermon title for today is David's Warning a Sleepy Generation. David's Warning a Sleeping Generation. I believe that it's vital for us, beloved, to understand Psalms 95 because Psalms 95 is what's used by our writer in the text. And those first century Jewish Christians who would have heard it would have known this psalm forward and backward. Why? This was a psalm. All verses, 1 through 11, not just 7 through 11, which we have in our text today. They would have known this psalm forward and backward because at the day of the tabernacles, the Feast of the Tabernacles, known as the Feast of the Booths, they would sing this song. 
They would be remembering what God did for them in the great exodus and remembering how in the wilderness God for their ancestors had provided shelter, provided manna, provided all sorts of supernatural miracles to give them substance and help them in their sojourning. So in this feast every year, these little boys and girls, they would go around singing Psalms 95. As they grow up, they would teach their own kids how to sing Psalms 95, what it meant. And here today, the writer, this preacher, he's giving it back to him. He's saying, you remember Psalms 95? Well, you and I, we didn't grow up like this, did we? No, we didn't. So what we got to do is say, hmm, this is interesting that the writer is reaching back and taking Psalms 95 to speak to first century Jewish Christians to help us learn something. So don't you think it's important that we kind of just pause and say, what's going on with Psalms 95? Who wrote it? What was the historical context? Because when we do, beloved, I hope you agree as we shall see. It sheds light, beautiful light for the sharpness of the admonition that he's trying to give to this first century Jewish New Testament church. So how are we going to approach the text? Well, verses 7 and 11, we're going to consider today. I've already thought about this. This is going to be a two-part message. Today, we're going to get through just understanding David's warning. We're going to get through understanding verses 7 through 11. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to take our understanding of that and we're going to apply it as the text does in verses 12 through 14. And then we'll deal with 14 to 18 and on into chapter 4 later. Okay, But today, we're just coming into an understanding David's warning to this generation as it's recorded in Psalms 95 and being utilized by the writer of Hebrews today. First of all, let's consider the audience and the context of Psalm 95 because that's what's listed here in chapter 3 of our text today in verses 7 through 11. You know, before we get started, let's just, let's just read it. We come here, chapter 3, beginning with verse... Let's back up to verse 6. That helps set the context a little bit. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and I said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, this is the ending of his quotation of Psalm 95, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of a heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning, our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, If you will hear his voice, again quoting Psalm 95, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Well, who was this psalm originally given to? Who was it given it to? Because the inspired writer here obviously considered it worthy enough to place in his argument to try to help these Christians to jolt them to understand the seriousness of what was at hand in their own life. Well, the original audience would have been, of course, Israelites. They would have been Israelites, just like the inspired King David, who chapter 4, verse 7 tells us, wrote and penned Psalms 95. And they were direct descendants of the generation that is being talked about here. They're some four to five hundred years after the wilderness experience. So they're direct descendants of their ancient ancestors. And not only that, these Israelites they themselves have experienced some pretty rough times. They have just come out of the horrible reign of King Saul, who for his own greedy gain, his thirst for prideful power, he almost ruined the kingdom, didn't he? You remember that. And now they have experienced this tremendous reign of King David for almost 40 years. 
After that stressful time under King Saul, these Israelites have come into this blessed time of the Davidic reign where their kingdom has prospered almost beyond imagination to the point that it leads the way of allowing King Solomon, David's greater son, to go forward and build the temple and for the Ark of the Covenant to be placed in it. That's who this, this psalm was originally given to, the audience that lived during King David's time. Now, Psalm, psalm 95, its context of when it was written also, I believe, beloved, is significant for us to consider. Because it was written toward the end of King David's life. It was written at the end of David's life. This is King David who would have had wrinkles upon his brow. He would have many tears, no doubt, in his past. And he's coming toward the end of his life as an aged, godly, experienced man. And he's going to give them a message in Psalms 95, half of which is in our text today, to help them move forward as God's people. Now you have it in your notes. We know from Job 12.12 that the words of an aged man one who is ending the near of his life, they're wise words. They're to be heeded and listened to closely. Job 12.12 says this much, is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? And thus prior to passing on to be with the Lord, King David, he uses his last moments of influence here in the historical context of Psalm 95 before he passes on. And he speaks to his original audience about how they're to move forward as God's people. Notice in your notes how Charles Spurgeon described Psalm 95 as David was inspired to give it. He says, as you have in your notes, it has about it, Psalms 95, a ring that is one of church bells. And like bells, it sounds both merrily but also solemnly. At first, it rings out lively appeal and then drooping into a funeral sound as if it's being rung very slowly. At a wedding, the church bells sound what? They sound uh, joyous, but at a funeral, they ring them real slow. And that's how Psalms 95, hoary-headed David's last words, as if it were toward the end of his life, is being expressed to the people of God. The first part is a joyous cause, you see in your notes, to praise and to worship God. And then the latter, heart, latter half is a warning, a very sober warning. Now let's consider today the first part of David's twofold calling to his generation in Psalms 95. It was a call to worship the Lord, wasn't it? You have it in your notes there. It was a call to praise God, the rock he calls the Lord of their salvation. Now why is this so significant for our purposes here in Hebrews? Well, because he's referring to the Lord as a rock. Now young ones, is the Bible teaching that God somehow is to be compared to an object as like a rock? Of course not. We know that's the case because the word used for rock, it carries with it the idea in the original language of shelter. It carries with it the idea, the Lord is the rock of salvation. He's the shelter that gives you salvation, protects you with the salvation. It carries with it the concept of continual supply, continual giving you what you need in connection with this salvation. And so for our purpose today, isn't that a fitting description of what we've learned about the Lord Jesus Christ in chapters 1 and 2? Jesus Christ in chapters 1 and 2 in His eternal divinity and sharing in the brightness of the Father's glory, and then in His humbling Himself, as we said, it's His humiliation as it's described in theology. He comes down in the flesh. And what does He do? Oh, beloved, He secures, He shelters our salvation. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we're ever accepted, kept and preserved in the Father. And so what a humble fitting it is that we come into this understanding of Psalm and the Lord is referred to as a rock of salvation in hindsight of what we've learned already in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews. What we see in the first half of Psalm 95, as you have it in your notes, is King David's inspired design and attempt 
to focus their affection on the attributes of God so that their adoration would bubble up in praise and worship of Him. Look at your notes. Verse number 1 of Psalm 95. He's called the rock of our salvation. Verse number 3. He is the Lord that is great. All capital letters there in your Bible, of course, denoting Jehovah. The all-powerful. The only one. All self-existent. Look at verse 3 again in Psalm 95. A great king above all gods. Lowercase g. Verse 4. Described as the strength of the hills. Or the strength of the mountains are his. There's no strength beyond his, in other words. Verse 6. The Lord is our maker. Verse 7. We are the people of his pasture. Now comes in that idea of a shepherd protecting, sheltering, caring for. Amen. So you see what King David was doing in the first half of the psalm that these, this original audience would have very, been very well uh, knowledgeable about is he's trying to focus them on the attributes of God, his faithful works in their life, and that is supposed to conjure up, it's supposed to well up organically, not forced, true adoration, worship, and praise. And so why would those people in David's generation ever with such a great glorious shepherd and provider in God ever think about leaving him? I mean, the foolishness of such thinking. You're beginning to see the parallels now. Well, think about what's been taking place in our own text. Think about all through chapter 1 and all chapter 2. It's a parallel. The writer has been doing that leading up before now he pulls out the later half of Psalms 95 as a warning. He's been building up their hearts and the faith that they say and they confess, chapter 3, verse 1, that they've tasted and that they've partaken of. That's all he's doing. It's like in this sermon, he's coming back and he's giving them the refresher course as he will later on saying, why do I have to speak to you as babes, as ones who need milk, when you should be chewing on this meat? You should be growing and building upon this meat. And so in chapters 1 and chapter 2, look what he does in parallel with what King David was doing. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus Christ made the worlds. He's, he's reiterating to them the gospel that they've received. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus Christ, He upholds all things by the power of His Word. By Himself, He purged our sins. Chapter 2, verse 10. He was made perfect through our sufferings. Chapter 2, verse 14, 14, Jesus described as the destroyer of death and the destroyer of the devil. Verse 15, the deliverer of those who are in bondage. Verse 17, the faithful high priest and reconciler of our sins. So just as in the first part of Psalm 95, David exalts the glory of God seeking to promote adoration and worship. So the writer of Hebrews here today has labored for the last two chapters. Remember, they didn't have chapter breaks. For the last first part of his message to exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ for the same intentions. To help them stay fixed upon who He is. So it would quench all these other doubtful disputations and temptations. The moment we've said it before, when we've been in Hebrews 1 and 2, we get our eye off of Christ, His covenant, and His gospel. We are prone to the attacks of the flesh, the devil, and the world. And I put a capital F on flesh. It's Christ and Christ alone. He's wanting to be reminded. How can we be confident that that's His intentions? Well, you know it is. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, remember the word consider? Remember the word consider? After exalting Christ in chapters 1 and 2, he come into chapter 3, he says, now consider the uh, apostle and the high priest of our faith, Christ Jesus. Then he says later on, remember, who was worthy of all, more glory, worthy of more glory than Moses. So he's following the same designed imprint as King David for his generation to wake them up and help them be preserved and insulated from the temptations that's going to come from within and from without to ever turn their back on Christ. And how do you do that? I know of no other better way than preaching Christ and Him crucified and Christ alone. 
The moment you begin to add anything to it, you're beginning to dilute the power and the preserving quality of the gospel. And beloved, even though we don't have exact details, but knowing our audience, our original audience here, being Jewish Christians coming out of that old covenant system of works to gain favor and appeasement with God, that could have been perhaps what they were tempted with. And while we are not so bold to confess that we do the same thing, let us be very careful that we make such a confession. Because many of us at times, we will begin to think that I have to do this, I have to do that, or I have to do this in order, in order to be justified or truly accepted of God. Now the pendulum, it seems in our modern evangelical times, to swing on the other side. Uh, there's more libertinism <laughs> than there is legalism going in the church today. But the point still is valid. It's Christ and Christ alone. And we must stay focused on that. And when we do, there will be true worship that David's calling to. There will be true attentive consideration that our inspired writer is calling us to. In other words, the call that David's making, the call that the original inspired writer of Hebrews was making to consider it to focus on Christ is not to be taken lightly, brothers and sisters. In light of chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, and now what we're seeing here in Psalm 95 that's being used by King David in the first half of it to praise and worship, we need to remember whom it is we are here to worship today. He is, after consideration of these texts, the self-existent Lord over all. Amen? Christ is the supreme King above all. He's the creator of the universe. He's the owner of the universe. He's the maker who forms and sustains the universe, including us. He is the shepherd who loves us, leads us, and protects us. And he is the rock we definitely learn in chapter 2, who saved us and delivered us. With that in our consideration, I don't think it's necessary And shame on us if it ever is necessary that we have to introduce what some old preachers would call uh, clever inventions in our worship in order to captivate the attention of God's people. That's not enough. Christ condescending down the eternal Son of God, leaving all of His glory above to pick up the cross and die in your place when you and I are the ones who deserved it, and then gives us His assurity that He will sustain us and preserve us through all thick and thin. Brothers and sisters, with that type of gospel, with that type of working of the Spirit in my life, revealing my cold, dead heart, the truth of that gospel, I don't need lights. I don't need certain types of music. You see, I have Christ. And in Christ, in Christ alone, and in these blessed covenant realities that He brings, I can't help but worship Him. And Brother Aaron, I don't care if it's just me and you doing it. We can sit around and have a kumbaya with just the two of us, no accompaniment by instruments or anything. Because why? We've entered the rest that's promised. The true rest. Now, I don't want to be too exclusive in making such claims and criticizing others who feel they have to incorporate certain things in their worship to keep a modern audience entertained. But could it be? And should we ought not ask when we have to bring in the modern inventions of the times in order to make people feel a certain way, to cry, or to pull on their emotional heartstrings, Beloved, perhaps there's a far more serious thing underlining the lack of rest they have in Christ which will bloom and blossom organic worship and praise. In other words, how many modern evangelicals would be fine if they were picked up out of the modern context and placed in the living room with the Apostle Paul and a New Testament house worship? Oh, well, 
you know, the music and the this and the that. Why? Why? Perhaps they haven't found the real rest. Perhaps they've gotten their mark off of Christ and His glorious gospel, beloved. How could they have done so? We desperately need to rediscover the wonder, beloved. We need to desperately in our age discover the weight of worshiping before our holy God. And I know no other better way to do that than to prayerfully meditate upon who God is. Psalm 35, 1-7. And what Christ has done. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. We tend to miss the significance, do we not? At times of the church's Lord's Day gathering. And we can kind of come in, you know, casually because, well, this is just what we do on Sundays. And it doesn't even cross our minds at times. And beloved, I'm a man. I I, I fall into this ditch at times myself and I have to wake up and realize what we are doing here today. It is the most awesome, mind-boggling, breathtaking, and distinct part of what we do throughout all of the week. We gather as people who confess the realities of this blessed new covenant and its mediator, Jesus Christ. And we worship Him. We adore Him. And that's all we need is Christ and His gospel to do so. Think about that. Now, brothers, in the church and get up every morning and go to work, I'm not motivated by how nice my boss is. I'm not motivated, you know, about all all the the different other things that, that he may be able to provide. I'm motivated by what? Making a good living. Amen. I mean, I want to be motivated by earning a good living for my family, so forth and so on. Well, ain't none of us here doing that. None of us here have come to praise and worship God because there's something in it for us. Of course not. It's the most mind-boggling thing we do all week. To sacrifice our time. For many of you, drive almost an hour to come and to hear somebody talk about God's Word and preach, partake of the sacraments. Oh, wow. But what an awesome privilege. What an awesome reality that you have the rest of Christ because it means that much to you. Beloved, when we come together as we are today, we're joining in what God's people have done ever since the time of King David. We are gathering here today to behold the glory, the majesty, and the works of God. And think for a moment that as Hebrews 1 1 said, even though David's audience, even though they were indeed blessed by God in many ways, Hebrews 1 1, as I said earlier, it does tell us in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. We have, what I'm saying, a more fuller revelation. So why not even more? We should be excited and we would see the glory of what we are privileged to do on this blessed day. Well, that was David's first kind of part of his psalm. Uh, It kind of sets the context a little bit that this first century audience would have understood. Yeah, why would we be thinking of doing anything else? We have so much in Christ, the fulfilled Messiah. Now we can with a sanctified imagination. Can we not picture King David at this point in his elderly life? As I said, an older man, a man who had slain many giants, but also a man in his personal moments of own unbelief, been slain by his own lusts. This older, hoary head, a man who threw it all by the grace of God, he never surrendered the rest that was promised to him. And here he is. Here he is coming into the second part of his song, which is being used today. And this old, wise King David, who knew so well what the deceitfulness of sin could do and the power of remaining sin. He knows that he needs to give his generation a warning, but a warning that's rooted in love, a warning of truth. And that's what's recorded in our text today. That's what it's recorded in our text today. So now let's consider our text today as it's the second half of Psalms 95. After we've understood what was going on in the first half of Psalm 95 in parallel with Hebrews 1 and 2, 
Now these people, this first century church, now you and I who have been given such a blessed reality in the gospel of Christ, we're going to be warned. We're going to be warned. David's second calling here in verse 7, beginning verse 7. These early Christians' heart posture, it should have been one of praise and worship, shouldn't it? One of holding fast the confidence that was mentioned in verse number 6, especially when considering what had preceded in the teachings of chapters 1 and 2. However, there was something that prompted the use of this latter half of Psalm 95 that would have sparked a dreadful tone of seriousness with this first century Jewish audience. Because it was a story that was ingrained in the very fabric of their religious and cultural experience since the days of their childhood, one which they were taught that they were never, ever supposed to repeat. As you have in your notes, one commentator says, quote, The story of Israel after the exodus from Egypt is chosen here as a solemn instance of how easy and how fatal it is to forfeit privileges by practical unbelief. Practical unbelief. In other words, the inspired writer, he wishes to root out at this point any pernicious security to the Holy Ghost. He wants to uh, remove any pernicious security that one claims they have the Spirit of God, but they don't live and they don't exhibit it. One that actually are entertaining the idea that they could forsake the gospel and still be okay. He wants to give and root out such security as being almost fatal, especially in light of the Israelites in the wilderness. This is why we first observed that in verse 7, he begins attributing this quotation of Psalms 95 to the Holy Ghost. It's very serious. Look at your text there. Verse number 7. He begins to employ the latter half of Psalm 95. He says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear His voice. Today, hear His voice. He attributes immediately Psalms 95 to the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And this brings before our consideration what we oftentimes call in the church the verbal, the the plenary, and the inspiration of the Scriptures. By verbal inspiration, we mean that every word of Scripture, as verse number 7 says, the Holy Ghost said, so it wasn't David talking, it was the Holy Ghost, it was the Holy Spirit. When we say verbal inspiration, we mean that every word of Scripture is God-given. It's given by God the Spirit. The idea is that every single word in the Bible is there because God wants it to be there. It's the verbal inspiration of God's Spirit in the Bible. Plenary, I think this is, there hasn't been another word that's come along. We use this in the church. We don't use it in our everyday language. So we we have to kind of flesh it out. But what do we mean by that? Well, we mean exactly what the writer of Hebrews meant here when he said, the Holy Ghost saith in Psalms 95. It means that all parts of the Bible are divinely authoritative. Not only the Old Testament Scriptures in Psalm 95, but also what's being said here by the apostles and the disciples that were sent out by Jesus Christ. And yes, that even includes the Old Testament genealogies that we trudge through sometimes. Beloved, that was plenary inspiration of God. He wants those to be in there as His divine Word. And then the idea behind the word that we often use, inspiration. Children, that means that God has supernaturally, by His Spirit, He's guided the biblical authors. We Remember our introduction to Hebrews, we, we weren't even told exactly. We don't know conclusively who wrote Hebrews. Most people believe it was the Apostle Paul. But when we say that the Spirit of God inspired these people, we mean that they spirits, that He supernaturally extraordinary. This is a miracle, guys. It's a miracle that He guided them through the power of His Spirit to write the exact things that He wished to be expressed in the Bible. So the verbal plenary inspiration of God's Word is what's being brought to the service here in verse 7 with the phrase, the Holy Ghost saith. It means that that's all parts of the Bible as well as every word of the Bible 
And it says exactly what God's wanted it to say. He guided the entire process to the end of the result that it would be used in this first century church and be used in our lives today. That's the weight of what we're reading in verse number 7. The Holy Ghost say it in Psalms 95. Now I've given it to you in your notes. The significance of this connection between the Spirit of God bringing into creation the Word of God as being the voice of God. You heard what I just did there? Am I making this up? No, I'm not, beloved. Not only do we see it in verse number 7, but look at your, study, your sermon notes. 35 times the writer of Hebrews will refer to Scripture as God speaking. Four times, he's going to refer to Scripture as the Son speaking. And five times, he refers to the Scriptures as the Holy Spirit speaking. And this shouldn't be a surprise, especially as we've been considering many times uh, Hebrews 1.1. He said, In my Son is my final revelation. And then we have preserved the words of the Son and the teachings of the Son. And then as the church moved forward before the canonization of the Bible, we have the teachings and the preserved words of the apostles who were sent by the Son. God's Word is His voice to us today. Now this is, of course, important because here in verse number 7 of our text today, we see that to uh, that we're to hear the warning with the tent of ears. Not because they're the words of this great patriarch. Um, I would never, in other words, uh, th- that's important, the Holy Ghost saith, to, to foster within their hearts, oh, well, this is serious. It's not because... Oh, David, yes. Oh, David, he was such a great patriarch, you know. David, under his rule and reign, our people prospered. So when he says something, we ought to take it just with a little bit more credibility. The author's attributing and bringing before our attention that it's the very Spirit of God that gives the inscripturated Word because it's by the authority of God that it has authority in our lives. It's not, we don't quote, you know, oftentimes we can get, we can get carried away with quoting old pastors and quoting theologians and things like that. And we never do it in the sense of saying, well, these men's words are just as authoritative as the Bible. No, that's never why we do it, beloved. If we ever quote anyone, any other man in, the, in, 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 in a sermon or in our lessons or in our family worship times, we're doing it because he's captured. He's been, by the grace of God, given some kind of light of a biblical truth, right? And so we use his quote to say, look, this, this is true. He said it was true, and, and, and he's established that in the Word of God, and so it helps us to better understand these things. But he brings up the surface here of the Holy Ghost being the very voice of God in the Scriptures to add to the weight of the authority that they're to listen to. And so the most practical application, of course, that we can observe from this truth that all Scripture is God's voice to us is that whenever the Word of God is spoken, no matter who it's being spoken by, whether it's mom at home, dad fumbling around perhaps in a family worship, and, and, and dads, let me just encourage you, you don't have to have a PhD to do family worship. Family worship, the blessed reality of heaven being on earth is just opening up the Bible, reading a chapter, praying, lifting up your family before God and giving Him. Uh, you can sing Psalms 95. How about that, guys? Let's go home and sing Psalms 95 tonight. That, 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 that's That's awesome. We could do that. But when the Word of God, children especially consider this, when the Word of God is being taught and spoken, it is God speaking, your Creator. That's whether, that's whether or not you've bowed the knee to the reality that God is your Creator. God's not your Creator because you decide that that truth is true. God is your Creator because God's your Creator. That's the truth, whether you accept it or not. And think for a moment, whenever his word's being spoken, it's your creator speaking. No matter who's speaking it, how well they're speaking it. And so with that, doesn't it add this applied attentiveness that we ought to bring whenever it's being read, whenever it's being taught? Well, we gather, you see in verse 7, secondly in verse 7, that whenever there is a drifting from holding fast, as mentioned in verse 6, 
there's a great deal of urgency that's expected. He says in, in Psalms 95, and our writer today is using it in the same way. He's saying, today, 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 if you will hear this voice, today's the day to hear his voice. There's no time to waste in heeding the voice of God in His Word. What is God telling you through His voice in His Word? The fool is the one who thinks that he's got more time. The fool is the one, as I said in my introduction, who thinks he can let the ship keep drifting. No, you see the urgency in the wise King David's words as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Today, today, heed the Word of God. Those who allow the ship to continue to drift only sadly discover that while they ignored God speaking to them in His Word, their heart became, their conscience became, their mind became more hard and hard. It doesn't have to be that way. Today's the day to hear His voice. I like how old one, one old Puritan said it. You have it in your notes. He that has promised pardon upon our repentance has not promised to preserve our lives until we repent. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, beloved. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Notice with me that connected with this urgent warning warning to hear is also a plea, an invitation to hear. It's right there in the text. If, today, if ye will hear His voice. This then we see is the remedy to the disastrous mistake that follows of the hardening of the heart as exhibited in the Israelites in their unbelief. When unbelief settles in, it becomes obstinate. When unbelief settles in, it becomes almost as this unmovable weight which plugs up our ears and it turns us into blind men and women groping around in the dark, stumbling around in our own ignorant schemes, thoughts, and imaginations until disastrously we are unable to discern truth from lies because we rejected, we put off, we kept pushing the pause button every time our mother, our father, our pastor, our wife, our husband was sharing with us the voice of God and the Word and we said no. We become more deaf and more blind, groping around and thinking through the lens, oh, God forbid we ever are ever given to a state as a nation, which it appears we are, or ever a people to such a mind of thinking that we have the answers and we don't need the authority of God's word in our life to guide and to help us. But here's the remedy we see. Take up his word, hear his voice. It is the Spirit's inspired word to us to strengthen us and give us hope against the hardening of unbelief. If you will hear His voice. The Israelites, they had been given the Lord's covenant through Abraham and then reiterated with Moses. Then they're shown His faithfulness. God demonstrated rather His faithfulness toward them through great acts of power, but still because of their sinful unbelief, they refused to hear the Lord and they continued in that state for upwards to 40 years. And we see in verse 8, the awful result. The hardening of the heart. Now what's that mean? We hear this term oftentimes when it's used in Scriptures. You see there in the Greek, the word means someone's heart, their attitude, their uh, their 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 spiritual their spiritual life um, their 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 their, um, their entire being it becomes obstinate it becomes stubborn that's what we mean by hardness of heart and, and I think most of the times when you refer to that way most people understand that don't they they understand that you say that person's heart of heart oh that's a stubborn person it's an obstinate person and in this verse eight we see that there's a spiritual effect placed upon the rejection of believing God's Word described as this hardening of the heart. In other words, it's not as if we hear God's Word, we hear God's voice, and we reject it, and there's no effect. That's the point. The more we reject God's voice, the more we reject God's Word, the spiritual effect is an obstinacy, a stubbornness, a hardening of our hearts. That's what we're seeing in verse 8 in the case of the Israelites. They became obstinate. They became stubborn and hardened. 
And in the case of the Israelites, as it's recorded in Numbers 14, many of you I'm sure are familiar with the story, after 40 years of the Lord meeting their needs, not their every desires, mind you, but their needs, they grew more and more discontent. They grew more and more ungrateful. And all the while, in this state of unthankfulness, ungratefulness, discontentment, grumbling, complaining, what was happening, it's so imperceptible, beloved. It's so cankerous and dark and evil. They were hardening their hearts all the while. And they thought that they were just letting their desires be known. (laughs) They must have just thought they were pretty innocent people, I guess. It was as though through the deceitfulness of this sin that they were exhibiting, their hardness of heart was so imperceptible that they did not, they did not truly realize the dangerous predicament that they were creating for themselves until it was too late. You ever heard that old phrase, that poor chap, he's digging his own ditch? Uh, we often hear that. Have you ever been in a, a, an environment where there's a meeting or a serious situation and someone starts talking and they just keep talking and they don't stop talking and you're thinking to yourself, they're digging their own ditch and they don't even realize it. You know? And that's what the Israelites were doing in many ways. And it was so imperceptible. And the deceitfulness of sin, which we're going to unpack and really exaggerate, uh, look at next week, it does that, beloved. That's why it's called deceitful. It's so imperceptible. But God gives us His Word, if you will hear His voice, to help prevent it. That's the remedy. Notice with me in verse 9 that this hardening of heart in their context of the Israelites in the wilderness, it, it, it occurred at a time of what's called provocation, uh, a time of temptation. Uh, meaning there was much contention in this time in the wilderness as they were waiting on the Lord's timing to take them into the promised rest and land of Canaan. It's described in these terms of verse number 9 that in this contention that was being brought about by their hardness of heart, not by God, He was giving them the substance of what they needed while they were in the wilderness. Not every woman, every desire, but in most cases He did. During that time, it created contention. It created strife with God. One true way to have strife with God is to be contentious to His voice and His word. Don't expect any rest. Don't expect any peace, beloved. If knowing what He calls us to, we reject and harden ourselves toward, there's always going to be this contention. In verse number 9, we see during the wilderness experience, instead of humbling themselves before God in their season of affliction and trial, seeking Him as the one who delivered them out of Exodus, Uh, out of Egypt rather, in the Exodus, parting the Red Sea. Instead of seeking His help once again to be patient, to be long-suffering, the Israelites constantly tested and they proved God. How did they prove Him? Well, He's not a man. He doesn't get proved like us. What's meant here in the text is that they were demanding of Him. And they were, if you go back and read the account as it's recorded in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. They were constantly proving God to repeat His proof of existence. They were constantly demanding of God to prove His presence with them. They were constantly demanding of God and requiring of God some demonstration of His power among them. You see, they were tempting Him. They were proving Him. They had seen His work so many times. But they're saying, we want to see more. We want to be given more. We need more. They were demanding almost as if it were. They were requiring of God to work according to their expectations in a way that they demanded in their time. And when God didn't do it, what did they do? They railed and they complained against Him. And they particularly railed against His servant Moses. And as unreasonable as all of this is that they were doing in this contentious provocating of the Lord, You know, for 40 years, God exhibited His long-suffering patience toward them that He actually did almost all the things that they needed and that they cried about. He cared for them all the while, even as unreasonable as it is. Well, this timing here of what's going on at this season of affliction 
in which with the, this hardening took place is very important for us to take note of because it's usually in the seasons of our lives when things are not going our way or when the weight of following our Savior in obedience of what He calls us to, no matter what station of life we're in, it demands much more than what we're willing to give it. And what happens? We begin to grow hardened to His voice. Well, verses 10 and 11 wrap up the peril of ever imitating and falling into the ditch of thinking like the old ancient Israelites in the days of the wilderness. They're described in verse 10 as they do always err in their heart and have not known my ways. David's saying, and our writer today inspired by the Spirit in Hebrews is saying, don't make this mistake. The text carefully to hear, inspired by the Spirit and purposefully states that they had erred in their hearts. It does not simply say that they erred. And that's important because we all err. That's not what's being talked about here. It's not that the Israelites in the wilderness you know, were following the Lord and they had a bad day because we're all in the flesh can be grumpy some days, right? It's, that's not what it's talking about. It's pointing out that they erred in their heart. And this is what is fixed upon in the warning. Don't err in the heart. There is, in a sense, we could say an error of ignorance, which isn't being communicated here. Saul of Tarsus uh, he persecuted, didn't he, the church of Christ in ignorance. He did it in ignorance. He, it was real. He would have been judged for it. And graciously by God, God intervened. He saved Saul and he opened Saul's mind to the, uh, Saul of Tarsus to uh, his mind to the truth and he became Paul, right? The great apostle. There's the error of ignorance, uh, the error of ignorance de- uh, demonstrated by the Sadducees all throughout the scriptures who had the oracles of God because of their ignorance and the hardness of their heart. What do they do? They refused it. And even in our own day, there's many in the church today, I'm sure I've been guilty of this, even though i got much zeal about something, I've erred in ignorance. And I've had to go back and change my beliefs, bring my uh, thinking under and in line with God's Word. Dare we ever lose such humility to where when we in ignorance have walked or went a mile in a certain direction, discovered that it's not the truth of God's will, dare we ever lose the humility, beloved, to come back and say, I was wrong. I need to apologize. And I've done that on more than one occasion. Because we do err in ignorance, but that's not what's being talked about here. The other kind of erring is the erring of the heart. The heart and its affections. And by this, we go astray, not through ignorance, but through the corruption and the perversity of our remaining flesh. This is what's meant here, beloved, in the verse, that they erred in their hearts. And David's telling them, don't repeat this in your generation. The writer today is telling us, guard the ship. Don't let the ship drift. Your heart, maintain your heart. For out of it are all the issues of life, Solomon says. This error of heart is a mind that sets itself in adversity against God's voice as it's in His Word and alienates itself from His will to be implemented upon it. That's erring in the heart. It's so imperceptible. And when it comes to full fruition... It's disastrous. Today, if you hear His voice, return. Come back. Repent. With such a disposition as being described here in adversity against God, the Israelites now are, you see in the text, shamefully described as having not known God's way. And get this. By this, it's referring to they would not allow God's way to rule and regulate them. That's what it means that they did not know God's way. The hardness of their heart and the erring of their heart, Isaac, gets to a point to where it's not that they didn't have a knowledge of God's way. 
I mean, dear brother, they had Moses sitting there teaching them. He was with God on the mountain. He comes down with the law of God amongst them, serves along with other fellow judges. He's teaching in their life the will of God. He's telling them what God says. They're not ignorant. They can't claim that type of error. They're being, tell, they're being told what the voice of God says. And they say to themselves, I will not bow my heart to it. I will not obey that. I'm not going to do it. That's what's happening. They did not know God's ways. It's not an ignorance of God's ways. It's a complete rejection of God's ways. A complete rejection of God's ways. And have you ever, beloved, been with someone where it's a simple, real obvious truth that you have to open up and perhaps it's uh, answering uh, uh, someone's conduct, behavior, or maybe it could even be simple, uh, simple as uh, maybe answering a doctrinal truth of the validity of the Trinity or something. And you're opening up to God's Word and you're saying, I, I don't understand how you cannot see what this says. Brothers and sisters, it may be very well that that person's heart is so hardened to the voice of God, they cannot see it and they will not see it. This leads, sadly, rejecting God with a diverse mind and heart attitude to the, to the curse that was pronounced upon them by God. In verse 11, upon the rebellious Israelites who after seeing and tasting so many blessings of God allowed themselves to become cold, numb to His voice, and in doing so, they never found the rest that He promised. Beloved, the Word of God the Holy Ghost saith, the very inscripturated words of God, it's weighty. It's serious. It comes to us at times in texts like this, and it's intended to, it's designed to make a stop, go over to the wall, check the barometer, what's the temperature? I want to heed the warning. There is, I know, as I, the, uh, by, the, by God's grace, search my heart, it hasn't become so hardened that I can't um, sense the truth of what it's saying and reflecting in me. There is a place that I do need today. Hear the voice of God in His Word. Today's the day. We come to texts like this and they're intended, as you see in your closing thoughts and applications, to remind us that while, oh yes, we never can lose sight of this, we're about to come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded of this that the blessings of Christ, while they are in His covenant, His gospel true, and while they are certain because of what He has done and who He is and what He promises to consummate, they all rest on Christ and Christ alone. And while that is true, beloved, these blessed gospel truths are never to be taken for granted and taken trivially or lightly. These blessings costed Jesus dearly. And while they are truly free to us, they weren't to Christ. They cost Him everything. That's what we get from this today. Imagining as if this first century older preacher sitting here talking to us in this way after expounding the gospel that we believe, what we have in Christ. And then he warns us as you move forward, be careful. Keep your hand on the ship. Guard your heart. Don't err in your heart. For the Christian here today, perhaps you come with a low-level appreciation of gathering with God's people to celebrate His works and worship Him as Lord and Savior. And perhaps in this text you sense that like the Israelites, you've become deaf to God's voice as revealed in His Word because of what it's calling you to do. And there in that area of your heart, it's become hardened. Please know that in order to have the rest intended by God, you need to heed His ways, hear His voice, come to His Word. There's no shortcuts with God, beloved. But here's the blessed part for you, believer. He doesn't expect you to do this alone. Remember the rock? Remember the Word, what it meant? It's a continual supply. He will give you the strength to hear His Word today. And His grace is sufficient for today. If 
you find yourself perhaps hardened in a certain area of your life, stop thinking where you want to be in a week or a year. Think about today. Come today and ask God. Come to your heavenly Father in the name of His Son Jesus and ask Him to forgive you, to restore you and to strengthen you. But for the unbeliever, upon examination of this text in Psalms 95, as it's recorded here in Hebrews 3, you perhaps have been made aware of your serious position which your unbelief against the claims of Jesus, who He is, His gospel, has placed you. It has placed you in this position that day by day by day, your heart is becoming harder, colder, number and harder and calloused to the things of God. And if that's the case, if that's you today here in this text, I pray that you also come and see and know the invitation that's given to you in verse number seven. If you would hear his voice, he's prepared to forgive such unbelief. Today is the day to repent of unbelief. You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to the end of a text such as this where your servant King David, inspired by your blessed spirit, warned his generation and the inspired preacher here today picks it up in the book of Hebrews, and uses it again to warn his generation. And thus, O Lord, it trickles down to even us today. And Lord, our hearts are very humbled. Lord, it's almost as if we can't even speak a word after considering such sober admonitions. For we know, O God, even the very best of us here, Lord, we in our lives, Father, have turned a deaf ear to certain portions of your voice at times. And we do plead our sin before you and ask for your forgiveness that you promised to us through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we plead, O Lord, your blessed Spirit to come, to preserve us, to give us strength, to stand up, shake the dust off of our failures, O Lord, our stubbornness of our heart, and move forward in the victory of Christ's gospel. O the preserving power, Lord, of your sustaining grace. We plead for it, for we are weak creatures, Lord, and we need it each and every day. Help us, we pray, especially as we approach our blessed supper. And we are reminded of what a great privilege we have in the Savior, what he has done upon the cross, costing him so dearly. Help us, help us to be reminded that all of our hope rests in Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in his holy name. Amen.